Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at the US debt ceiling and irrespective of where you invest, whether that's in local markets or whether it's in the US, this is something that will have an impact on global markets, both in terms of shares and in terms of bonds. Plenty of things to take note of on here. And as always, most importantly, don't just simply take notes, make sure you take plenty of action. See you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter, looking dashing as always. Good to see you too, my friend. Hopefully you had a, a good trip to the US and some good insights for us from, uh, from being on the ground there in New York. Absolutely. Just near my hotel was the, uh, the, the, the debt clock as mm-hmm. such, which is actually our topic of conversation. One of your least favorite topics is debt. We're going to be talking about the US debt ceiling. Now, this did come up in conversation in 2022, about midway through the year, although quite a timely exercise. We have this conversation now. It is. It's been you know, talked of in the media, the usual scaremongering, horrific, the world's about to stop spinning because it's going to breach, breach its debt ceiling, which is an astronomical $31.4 trillion now. It's a lot of money. It used mm. to be 30. I think it's been increased to 31.4, hasn't it? And will very likely be increased again this year, I suspect, but I'm sure we'll get into that as we dive deeper in the podcast. Absolutely. So before we go any further then, AB, your insight, what is the debt ceiling? How does it work? Okay, so the debt ceiling is really effectively the total amount compounding of US government debt. Uh, And why would you have debt? Well, if you've borrowed to buy something or if you're spending more than you earn. So if we look at this in a household situation in the first instance, um, if you've borrowed and you've got a mortgage, well, that's your debt, but you're chipping away at that and hopefully you've got a payoff date for it somewhere down the line, whether it's 25 years or if you've you've got yourself structured properly and you can accelerate your repayments, then uh, bring in a bit quicker than that. The other side of the coin is you know, your personal debt. If you spend more than you earn, so let's say you pull in two grand a week, but you've got a fairly hefty spending experience and you're spending two and a half, well, your debt's going to increase. And when we look at the US uh, government, as most governments around the world have been, they're much better at spending money uh, than they are in terms of being able to earn it or raise it. And so uh, there's a substantial deficit where, you know, and it's accumulating because obviously there are interest payments on it now, uh, which as we said at the, the start is sitting at somewhere like 31 uh, trillion with a T dollars is an astronomical amount of money. It's a, it's a large amount. And Will it get paid back? I guess that's the question. Well, I mean, it's a lot of money to pay back. Would it be because of COVID that we saw that debt ratchet up so much with the stimulus and whatnot? Well, there's no question that COVID, um, as it came through, as it did in many countries, Australia included, of course, uh, where you know there was a, a significant level of government stimulation and support provided to to steer the economy through um, you know unknown times. Um, definitely added to that problem, but I think there are a number of other issues too, just as we've seen in Australia, you know, the spending that we put in uh, to keep the economy afloat through things like JobKeeper have had longer term impacts on the job market, for example, and also given the overstimulation that perhaps governments have provided, uh, it's also created an inflationary problem in the Western world too. So company, sorry, excuse me, countries more often than not are always in debt. We know that that's, that's quite common. Why are we having such a specific conversation to the US right now. Mm. We know they're, they're bordering that, that ceiling as such, but why is it actually so important? Okay, so in, in the US, is a, uh, it's it's part of the constitution where there's a level of debt that's deemed as being acceptable. Obviously that level has, has increased substantially over the last decade or so. Um, and, uh, and and if if that debt breaches that or gets close to that ceiling, uh, it's, a, it's a requirement for Congress to sit and pass legislation to either raise that ceiling or to take other forms of action, which we've 
there was at the sea before, I suppose. So, you know, it is quite significant in terms of the impact of it. There's a level to how far you can borrow. And then after that, um, you've got to go back and get permission to go go a bit harder, I suppose, from, from Congress in the case of the US. So, you know, it, it is a sort of hard line in the sand, albeit a line in the sand that keeps getting moved. It was 30 trillion, as you mentioned, you know, about two years ago, now it's 31.4. And I'd imagine it's probably going to go up by a, a similar amount again this time if Congress pushed that legislation. And uh, I think it's Amendment 14 in the, in the Constitution right. for them to do it, yeah. So question for you, AB, if that line in the sand were not to be moved mm. and the ceiling were to be hit or at least sailed close mm. to as such, what would actually happen to the US economy? Yeah, it's, it's catastrophic. It's shutdown time. So government employees stop getting paid uh, and, and the wheels of, of commerce grind to a halt. Um, you know, it's something that hasn't been seen previously. There's been very, very close to it as there's been a, a political standoff. And I guess we'll talk about what that might look like this time around uh, through Congress as we go deeper into, into the subject. So, you know, it is catastrophic. It's the end. You know, we can't pay back. We're not in a position to borrow anymore. Uh, we're, we're tapped out. Uh, and, and that would be, you know, economic Armageddon. And the idea of that is really multifaceted. Number one, if you're a government employee, you stop getting paid, which immediately stops your spending, which immediately has a knock-on effect uh, within the economy. Um, secondly, um, you know, if, if there's a risk of default on the part of the US where they say, look, we can't pay our debt back, um, then, you know, that unsettles the global economy on a, on a scale that's never been seen before, in which case you have huge volatility, huge sell-offs in all asset classes in all markets, uh, you know, and it's just a, a disaster. Well, here's some numbers for you. I read um, Janet Yellen's, the Treasury Secretary, her some some of her statements. Only about a third of that debt is within the US, about mm. 10 trillion. That means there's 20 trillion out there of global mm. debt as such. If the US can't pay that back, that would have huge effects on countries even like here in Australia, right? Yeah, it would. Um, you know, and you can also look at it as a, a political weapon too. So, for example, you know, the two of the larger company, countries that uh, that that um, that have provided funding for the US through buying treasuries include countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, and China. So if you were to weaponize your debt, and I'm just putting this out there uh, as a discussion point, I suppose, uh, for devilment's sake, can you go, listen, you know, you've had a crack at Taiwan, so we're basically writing off all debt and we don't owe you anything. It's repatriation time. Same with U Ukraine uh, and Russia or, or potentially with Saudi Arabia. And uh, just so that you've got a debt that you owe us for coming in and helping out during the Gulf War. So, yeah, we're not honoring our debt to you specific countries. So it's written off and zeroed. Has that ever happened before <laughs> in history? Uh, no, not really. I suppose you know, Russia will be the one that probably springs to mind most recently. And I think, uh, ooh, testing my memory now, around about 97, 98 was the, the Russian um, debt default where they effectively said, we don't have the cash to pay you back, so we're not going to. But that was unilateral. It was everybody. It wasn't by, right. by country. Um, but I'm just putting that out there as a, you know, it's fairly unlikely that that's going to happen. But you can imagine that, that that would be a beneficial thing for the US to get involved in a bit of a stash, provided it's not nuclear, uh, and, uh, and, and have their debt resolved. So geopolitical conflict, Job losses, I think the estimate would be around six million. Is yeah, what Janet I'd, Yellen I'd, said. I'd go even beyond that. I mean, the sort of economic Armageddon on the back of a default is, you know, significant, substantial, and and long term recession. So six million, I think, would be would be a fairly conservative, conservative. number. I'd double that easily, and some. So it, it really is a major thing. Equities, you know, big drop in the market, 40 percent, because it's just just a huge loss of confidence in in the robustness of the financial system. So you know, these things that that, that that are a consequence of the unthinkable, and that's a default. Um, you know, there 
are places you can go to profit from that. You could trade volatility, which would be through the roof. Um, but that will be one of the few, few financial instruments you could really look at because bond markets would drop in just the same way as equities would because all of a sudden, uh, you know, a US Treasury has gone from being you know, deemed a, a, a AAA rated, very low risk investment to being junk bond. So what is actually the likelihood of this happening, AB? I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> because we had this conversation about maybe, what, 10 yeah. months ago, yeah. nine months ago, and everyone was scared yeah. they raised the debt ceiling. Would they likely do the same yeah. this time? I think it's one of those things, once you get into that spiral of borrowing, and I guess it's it's modern financial theory, just keep borrowing, don't worry about re- repaying it. That, that's somebody else's problem way down the line. And and it does become a problem when, for example, here in Australia, when you get your, your tax return and you see how much tax you've paid very kindly on the back, uh, there's a little bar chart there that shows you where your money's been uh, your tax revenue has actually gone to and debt servicing it gets bigger and bigger and bigger because the amount borrowed by government of course is increasing so yeah i don't think it's especially likely but it's the sort of thing that could cause some level of uncertainty in markets when you know there's a fair bit to contend with you know the us is drifting into recession are you likely to start to see an increase in unemployment We've got inflation, which has remained stubbornly high, even though it's starting to decline. That's because it's coming off you know, a higher base a year ago now, where there was already some level of inflation. You know, we've got interest rates that have been fairly aggressively jacked up, and there's maybe, I don't know, one, maybe two further rate hikes in there, maybe 25 basis points and another another one just to square the cycle off. Um, so you know, there's a lot to contend with within the US economy, and this kind of external shock or internal shock for the US, um, has got the ability to create some volatility. So UVXY, VIXI uh, are two ETFs, one geared, one ungeared, in the volatility space that would likely benefit um, from um, you know, the risk of default. Um, chances of it happening, as I say, are very low. Um, ultimately, Congress typically passes um, legislation to increase it, although Again, we're in a very different political landscape uh, than we've been in previously insofar as, you know, you've got a Democratic White House. The midterms have just turned over the keys to Congress, uh, to the Republicans, but it's been far from a Republican majority. It's only a very thin majority anyway. Uh, and I think just recently where we had the the prospect of electing a new speaker uh, in, in, in Congress, took, I think, was it four or five rounds of voting uh, before the incumbent stepped through. And for those that don't realise, the speaker role in Congress is actually very, very significant because after the vice president is the third most powerful person in the US, your president, vice president, and then the speaker for Congress. So it's a very, very, it's not a, it's not a um, figurehead role, it's a really material role because you get the ability to set the agenda, the voting, uh, timelines of voting, and all sorts of really material things for the engine room of the, the country, I suppose. Um, and, and the Republicans are in, but it seems to be a very fractured Republican party where there are a couple of minority groups floating around, which under different circumstances, if you've got a really big majority in there, it makes no difference if there's a couple of sort of fractional groups. But when you've only got a very, very thin majority, you've kind of got to galvanise everyone's support to get things through. So ordinarily, in this situation, if the debt ceiling needed to be raised, the Republicans would go, look, let's get into some horse trading, water down your policies on this, that and the other, and then we'll vote for it. Uh, but this time round, I think it may be a little bit more challenging by virtue of how fractured the, the, the Republican Party is uh, right now uh, in the US. So that is a risk insofar as the normal brinkmanship of taking it to the 12th hour and then Congress passes legislation. Yeah, that's that's not necessarily going to be smooth sailing, which may well cause some volatility for markets on the way in. So a question to you, AB, if you are the US government right now, prior to having to, as a last resort, raise the debt ceiling, 
Are you looking at raising income tax to raise more revenue or are you looking at cutting spending? But what areas do you cut? It's a controversial topic, right? Yeah, look, uh, and again, I mean, if you're the government, you know, we're from the government, we're here to help. are probably five of the most frightening words you'll ever hear in your life. Much of what's been going on in the US has been actually by executive order as opposed to, um, you know, the world's greatest democracy is actually India, not the US. Let's be really clear on that. Um, in the executive orders passed by the president uh, supersede um, legislation that gets put through Congress. So instead of there being a democratic process where people that have been voted in um, then get a further vote to say this is what we want to happen, the president can just sign an executive order to do virtually anything. Uh, And President Biden has been quite um, active in executive order uh, type legislation, some of it to repeal you know, initiatives from the previous president, Donald Trump, you know, um, changing the tax cuts that, that President Trump put into play, which arguably were great for stimulating investment in the US economy and, and, and really getting it to the powerhouse it was prior to prior to the change of government and pandemic, I suppose, or post-pandemic. So, yeah, that, that ability to just go, well, I'm just doing this anyway by executive order is something that very much remains in play. And, you know, it's kind of ironic for people when, you know, they think they live in a democracy, yet, you know, the legislation's being put forward by, you know, a very, very small group of people that effectively control the legislature and government policy going forward. So I, I spoke previously about winding back the tax cuts that were put into play uh, from from President Trump. Um, some of the other things um, that, that, that sit in that sort of in-tray, if you will, of executive orders or political agenda, um, and, and bear in mind, you know, if we're seeing the US drive into a recession, these are times where good, robust economic management is extremely important. So you've got to watch what you spend and be very deliberate in terms of the way that you collect the revenue up and start to fatten the goose, if you will. Um, when you get that wrong, uh, a good example of getting it wrong would be Liz Truss, uh, the Ooh, yeah. arguably the shortest serving uh, UK prime minister. I think she just made it over the line by one day to not be the shortest serving. But nonetheless, here you are in the midst of a set of economic circumstances and you belligerently go about a political agenda, which is so far in conflict with the economic statistics and, and, and economic position at the time that you effectively single-handedly wreck your economy where you see the UK losing um, its reputation for being a very steady as she goes stable economy to this wild card, depending on who's sitting in the big chair, depends on what you kind of get um, perception from a world markets perspective. And the pound and the bond market, the, 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 the gilt market in London hasn't really recovered from that shock yet. So turning back to the US, you know, you look at some of the, uh, the, the, the tax legislation that's been brought in and, and it should come as no surprise. You've got a democratic government or Democratic Party, should I say, in government. Uh, So you're going to have a real push forward of very liberal agendas because that's the nature of the party. And and I guess as a capitalist, as a free marketeer as I am, some of that I I find quite hard to come to terms with. Uh, And and some of the things that we're talking about here is an overhaul of the tax situation in the US. And look, I get it. If you're you're in a position where you've got significant wealth, the tax structure in the US is actually quite well put together to help you tiptoe around having to pay your fair share. At the same time, when you change the legislation and propose taxing unrealized capital gains on shares and other assets in order to shake the tree and get money in, you've got to call into question the validity of that. So let's take, for example, you have stock in a company and that particular company has done especially well. 
So you are going to be taxed on not what you've realized from it. Because don't forget, if you own shares in a company, you only enjoy the benefit of those shares when you realize the gain from it. So on an unrealized basis, the share price might have doubled. So if you've got to pay capital gains tax on the share price doubling, but you haven't actually received the benefit, you're paying tax on something you haven't actually had the proceeds from. What then happens if that company collapses and the share price drops to zero and you've got an enormous capital loss? Do you go to the government and say, well, I've got a capital loss now. Can I have my, uh, can I, can I have a refund? Which I'd suspect isn't going to happen. So, you know, this notion of um, unrealized capital gain taxing, I understand why it's been put forward because the US and a lot of wealthy people in the US reinvest in their businesses. A lot of hedge fund managers, for example, keep their money in the company to help defer, not avoid, because you can't avoid it at the end of the day, but defer paying tax. Push debts, it down the line, which, right? which makes sense, time value of money discounts and, 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 sure. and so on and so forth. So it makes sense to do that. And it's legislated that you can do that. But to try and tax that is nonsensical. It's pure political play. We're going to go after the rich to support the poor because typically lower income earners will support the Democratic Party. So it's political gender. If you take some of the other things, like for example, and again, as a, as a free marketeer, as a capitalist, um, the forgiveness, if you will, of your university debt. So that number runs, I think, is about $350 billion. It's a lot, yeah. 330 I think it is exactly. $330 billion the US government is looking to write off in forgiveness for university debt. That's a lot of money. Right. So A, that money has to come from somewhere at a time when things are looking a little bit more challenging. But secondly, if you've been to university and consumed the resources... Okay, so you you were there, you're using the service, you've got an education, and now you don't have to pay for it. That likely means that more and more people will start going to university because it's free. And just because they've gone to university doesn't necessarily provide an economic benefit for the country because you could stay being a student for, I've got a couple of people I did meet at uni that had been there for 10 years, not because they're, and they're just resitting, changing courses because they enjoy that way of life and they don't want to get out into the world. All of a sudden, you've got a free swing at this hedonistic period in your life that you're never going to have to pay for. Whereas if you've consumed the resources and you go into the job market, the idea of capitalism is to take a resource and multiply the impact of that resource. So if you take one unit of input, whether it be labor, raw materials, machinery, energy, whatever it might be, in a model of free markets, you take that one unit of input and turn it into two or three or five or 10, which creates a greater good for everybody, not just the person that's getting that benefit, but the tax you then pay, the people you employ, uh, the products you're able to help people with and so on and so forth. If you go to uni and you consume university, and then on the other end of it, you don't have to return a dollar on that because you don't have to get a dollar from it to pay it back. All of a sudden, that resource is not being used in its most efficient way. Kind of grates a little bit that. 330 billion in write-offs to achieve what? And really, without being too political, you know, the school system in the US as it is, you know, is typically left-wing across most parts of the world, but especially in the US in terms of people who identify as being Democrats is a great vote winner for the Democrat Party. And it's a way of sort of staying in office. It's not for the greater good of the economy. It's not to help people that can't afford an education to get it because you can get scholarships. So I'm from a working class background, I got into uni, I paid my way through it. It's possible to do that. 
it just might be a little bit harder. But that barrier to entry is exactly the reason why it should be there to make sure when you do get there and get that opportunity, you make the most from it. Absolutely. And that's a, that's an efficient use of resources, which I guess is what capitalism, capitalism is all about. You know, you've had other things like the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, these things cause huge consumptions of capital, bigger government departments to supervise them, but there's no real tangible benefit on the other side. So, you know, it, it's an interesting one. And, and, and you know, if you look at the, the, the spending pattern under under the Biden administration. I think there's something like $10 trillion of additional spending has been created over the next few years through executive orders and some of these more fanciful, um, possibly politically motivated uh, and, and liberal policy. Which is really tough because the, the consumer is the one who ends up struggling uh, as right. a result. It, it's broad based because a rising tide lifts all ships. And if you see an economy move into recession, what does that mean? Or oh, we'll give more unemployment benefit out, uh, which has to come from somewhere. Or do you try and keep your economy afloat by managing it in a more effective and, and productive way? So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a real challenge. It's going to be volatile for markets. It's going to cause a lot of uncertainty. It probably won't happen. But the uncertainty is the anticipation until it's confirmed that the debt ceiling has been uh, adjusted higher. Expect a little bit of volatility as that news flow hits the headlines a little bit more. And we, we've talked about headline type trading quite extensively over the last couple of years where, you know, you see inflation is in the headlines and so market the choppy, talk of interest rate rises, market the choppy, and then for the rest of the month that dissipates and moves on to page five of the newspaper. But when it's on the front page, when it's the headline, that's where it really tends to create some drama. And and, and you'd, you'd hope that number one, Congress is unified in a way uh, to get sensible legislation passed to manage this through without causing too much distress for financial markets. Um, and, and secondly, the trade-off on that is you know, a serious windback of some of the liberal politically motivated um, policy decisions coming out of the White House, either by legislation or indeed executive order, um, at a time when the economy really can't afford to carry uh, those kind of uh, ideological uh, financial decisions because everyone ends up paying for it years down the line. It's not a good situation to be in. So as we wrap up here, AB, if you are listening to this and you're an active trader of financial mm. markets, what would you be doing right now after listening to this? I think I'd be very much having my radar up for when that becomes more and more newsworthy again. I mean, it's just popped up now and it's, what is it, June, I think, is the date that that ceiling... Yeah, about six months, that's right. Yeah, yeah. or if the money runs out before then, uh, then it'll be on the front page again. So be very minded as that news starts to move toward the front page uh, of the paper um, that it will have a more and more marked impact on markets. At the moment, it's just another data point in the, in the sea of data points that we get to look at every day. Uh, but as it moves forward, it's going to create volatility. And volatility in itself is a great opportunity to create revenue because you can trade volatility either through the options market or targeting it through ETFs and things like that. Um, so that's what I'd be looking out for. And as a consequence, I'd also be fairly cautious in terms of asset allocation in the run into that. Um, you know, I've got some bond positions running right now. Um, that, that are looking reasonably healthy. And I think, you know, maybe looking to take some money off the table ahead of the bond market being repriced out of fear that US credit ratings might drop if the debt ceiling isn't raised might be quite a prudent course of action. And just keeping the powder dry through that big type of economic news. Um, but as I said, the, the landscape this time is, is a little different given the composition of Congress. Even though there's a Republican majority, it's very thin and it's very fractured. So. If you typically go back through your playbook, which I like to do, given my experience, 
there are lessons to see from the past, but as always with markets, what we're dealing with today is unique in terms of where the chess pieces are on the board. Uh, and I think that may well cause, um, you know, this one's a bit of an outlier, I think, and, and we might see a bit more choppiness as the brinkmanship uh, in, the, in the run up to that vote comes through. Um, where to from there? Who, who knows? I mean, you know, we've got a, you know, we're halfway through a presidential cycle at the moment. And again, without making this you know, too, too much more political than it's probably been already, it'll be very interesting to see as we move through this year, not only debt ceilings, but who the heir apparent might be in, in the next presidential race. On the Republican side, I'll almost certainly say, you know, Ron DeSantis uh, would be front and center as, as, as the candidate for, for the next presidential run. Uh, and I think there's, there's plenty of evidence that would suggest that Biden uh, will be a one-term president on the basis of his age and mental acuity. And that notion of of passing the baton on to his offsider, his um, vice president, that's a bit more challenging too, because you don't have uh, an age issue uh, in, in in that particular person's case. But I think from a mental acuity perspective, probably not suitable for the job either. So it's not yet emerged as to who the uh, the front runner will be uh, on the Democrat side of things. But you know, we're getting to that point now. June legislation passed, and then I think we're starting to see the emergence then of what the landscape politically might look like in the US. And if we're in, an, in a recession in the US, I think bipartisan politics become very, very difficult. That more unified front to we need to get through this, it, it's more important that we get through this as an economy than it is to be pushing a, a single political agenda is, 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 is something at the moment, given the landscape, we're not likely to see. It's very divisive, as you saw firsthand. Absolutely. AB, sage advice, great analysis. Thank you so much for your insight today. Absolute pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating so we can spread the word further. And we look forward to hosting you next week.